Let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew in chapter number 5. I encourage you to take a, your notes out this morning as we go through the passage, maybe jot some things down and follow along closely. We began a new series last Sunday morning that we have called Kingdom Living. We're looking at themes in the book of Matthew. And so we spent the summer in the book of Colossians. We really went verse by verse, didn't miss a thing. And we'll go a little bit, uh, we won't see every verse in the book of Matthew, but we'll work our way through the major themes. And so I want to say our theme verse together. And the kingdom is the theme all throughout the book of Matthew. And probably a verse many of you have already memorized, but if not, You'll have it down by the end of this series. So let's say this together. Matthew 6 and verse 33 all together. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, we pick up our text this morning in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. Matthew 5 verse number 1. But seek ye... F I'm sorry, that was the last passage. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into where? He went into a mountain. And, he was, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And we'll read what he said in just a minute. But we know, we, where we left off last week was that this message of the kingdom of God had been being preached. First by John the Baptist, and then by Jesus. And he, pre he preached to multitudes and multitudes of people. In fact, if in between, um, in between uh, chapter number four and chapter number five, you have whole things from the book of John that are not recorded in Matthew's gospel. So the, the gospel of Matthew kind of fast forwards us to what we see here, which is the Sermon on the Mount. But there were actually a lot of things that happened before the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus with Nicodemus, when he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That all happened before the Sermon on the Mount. The, I, I believe the account with the woman at the well was before the Sermon on the Mount. Many miracles and many healings had happened all before the Sermon on the Mount. So you say, okay, so what does that mean? It means that by this point, Jesus is very, very popular. He is, he is well known, he is well regarded, and people from all over the whole nation are coming to see him. Maybe he'll do a miracle. Maybe there will be a feeding. Maybe someone will be healed. And he's preaching and he's gathering multitudes of multitudes of people. But did you notice what happened in verse number one? Did you see what happened? In verse number one, Jesus sees who? Who does he see? He sees, let's just assume, thousands of people. He sees thousands of people that have all come to hear him. But where does he go? Does he go to the multitudes? No. He goes up a little bit higher. He takes a little bit further journey. He moves up into a mountain. In verse number one, we saw the multitudes. 
Jesus goes unto a mountain. He sits down. That was the, the common format of the day. The teacher would sit, and you all would stand up for the, for the whole thing. So we don't do that anymore. You, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go for that, so we don't even try it. But that was how it would work. The teacher would sit down. All the people would come around, and they would stand, and they would listen. But notice, did the multitudes follow him up the mountain? They didn't. Who came up the mountain? It was the disciples. It was the disciples. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to teach them what it really means to be a part of his kingdom. What it really means to be a follower of Christ. And I just hope this morning, and I believe, because I, I know not everybody in here, but, but most of you, I sincerely hope that you are not just among the multitudes, but you are one that said, I will go a little bit further with Jesus to know him personally. This is the difference between people who know about Jesus and people who know Jesus personally. The disciples come and Jesus begins to teach them about his kingdom. And it's not going to be what they expected. Did you know that there are really, even today, two kingdoms in the world. There's two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's God's kingdom, and there's the kingdom of evil. And so underlying all things great and small, underlying the world's struggles, underlying your personal struggles, there's really two kingdoms at war. And so Jesus is teaching about his kingdom, and there's so much that we'll look at all throughout this series. But he's going to show us in the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is designed to change our perspective. It's designed to change our thinking. In other words, the people would come to Jesus thinking they knew what real spirituality was, thinking that they knew what it was to obey God, to walk with God. They knew what it was to be good religious people. And Jesus is going to flip the tables on them, figuratively, but he does do that literally later on. Jesus is going to flip the tables on their understanding of what life in his kingdom is really all about. And Jesus has been doing that ever since. People come to Christ thinking that they understand how things ought to be. And Jesus turns it around. So, so how many of you have ever read the Sermon on the Mount? I remember when I was a kid and starting to read my Bible, I liked to go to the parts of the Bible that were very straightforward. It was like, okay, this is what you were supposed to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and your life as a Christian will be good. And then I would read Matthew, and I would read Jesus teaching on the kingdom, and I'd be like, I don't understand what is going on here, right? A, a good example, we, have a, we had a great gathering on uh, Thursday night of our young adult group here. It was awesome. And we were actually in Matthew's gospel. We went to the passage where Jesus said, whoever will save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever will lose his life is going to what? They're going to find it. Yeah, they're going to find it. And Jesus says things. One of, the, one of the guys, and I totally appreciated his authenticity, he's like, wait a minute. He said, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, that's what we're all, like, afraid to say when we read these things. But nobody's just, like, you know, unashamed enough to be like, that doesn't make any sense. 
So I used to read this and get frustrated sometimes by like, well, Jesus, why don't you just say what, what you mean? But as I read it more, and as I understood the Gospels more, I began to understand that Jesus was not in a hurry to get to the end. He was about the, the he was in the mind-changing business. He was in seeing people's hearts transformed and changed. And so if you are looking at the Sermon on the Mount and you're thinking, okay, there's got to be three or four things in there. If I do those things, I'm okay. You're missing the whole point. This is a passage designed for your expectations to be shattered and for you to examine your heart and for me to examine my heart and say, do I really grasp what Jesus is after here? We look at, the, so let's, let's look at it. So it says in verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what's the key word? The first word, you will see this over and over again. It is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Well, it's important that we define that word blessed. Blessed. It means literally to be happy. And some people will translate it that way. They'll say happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. I think happy is, a, is it, it's an inadequate word. And I like, the, I, I like the traditional word blessed. While it means happy, we know that there's something more than that there. We know that there's something that goes a little bit deeper. And so it is a happiness that comes from a deep sense of satisfaction. A happiness that comes from a deep sense of satisfaction. It's like, have you ever had that moment where you said, ah, Life is good right now. Now, maybe you're not living a moment like that right now. You might not be. And I understand that. But we can all, we remember those times where we say, wow, at just, you're just experiencing something and life is filled with highs and lows and all of that. That sense of blessedness when you're just like, wow, life is good. The good life, in other words. That's the idea of blessedness. Aren't we all after that? The good life, so to speak? You say, no, you know, maybe, and people would deny that, but the fact is we are. We are looking for that in our careers. They say that the, the, uh, the millennial generation and Gen Z, have, they've 
when they look at a career, that the ulti- one of the ultimate things that previous generations weren't looking for is some sense of satisfaction and meaning in the work. And all the boomers and Gen Xers are like, just get up and get a job, just go to work, right? Just get it. But you know what? Is there anything wrong with looking for meaning in your work? No, in fact, in fact, I celebrate. I should say that should be celebrated because we are creatures created for meaning and purpose and value. But the fact is that ultimate meaning will never be found in the career. But we look for it in our relationships as well. I'm thankful for my marriage. We just celebrated this summer 17 years, which is, which is exciting. And I know in the church we have people who have been married over 50 years which is awesome. But even in the best of marriages, it's not always blessedness. <laughs> Some of those chuckles were a little too loud out there. No, no. So we look for that sense of deep abiding happiness in careers, in relationships, in our children. And seeing their, our, our children grow and develop and succeed. People like to look and say, wow, that's, it, it's, a, it's a, just a deep sense of satisfaction. So it's a natural longing in every human heart. So Jesus comes in. Now, it's important that you read these passages not like, oh yeah, I've heard them. I learned this in Sunday school. I've heard them over and over again. Let them give you the full impact of when Jesus spoke them. Because what he's going to do is he's going to turn it inside out. You're going to flip it around. Because most people, most people live in the realm of outside-in happiness. Do you know what I mean by that? Most people live in the realm of, and, and this is the way the kingdom of this world works. Remember, there's two kingdoms, and there's a deceptive kingdom in this world. And the kingdom of this world says that happiness comes outside in. That if you can arrange the circumstances of your life, and you can make, make things favorable, then you can find happiness from the outward circumstances in. And we all live in that world, even the most dedicated and faithful of Christians, if we're honest, we often slip back into that. Well, if I could just buy that, if I could just get out of debt, if I could just get that, if I could just go on that trip, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just. But Jesus is about to teach not an outside in happiness, but an inside-out happiness. And don't misunderstand, I'm not saying look inside of you and you will find happiness. What I'm saying is God will put something inside of you that will give you that blessed life that he talks about. And so in this, he's going to speak about this, the, what it's like to fully accept God's kingdom. What it's like to truly live Jesus with the kind of happiness that Jesus can bring. So turn, turn over now in your notes and let's look. I'm going to give you three themes. And this, these, these Beatitudes, as they've been called, the Beatitudes, as they've been called, they could be broken down lots of different ways. I just wanted to give you three, three major emphases that I find in this list of Beatitudes. First of all, I want you to see in verses 3 through 6 that we need to understand our emptiness. We need to understand our emptiness. 
then I'll show you in verses 7 through 9 that we need to recognize a need for transformation. And finally, we need to make plans for an eternal future. But let's talk about what, what do I mean understanding our emptiness? With that in mind, I want you to, thinking about understanding our emptiness, I want you to read these four verses with me, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Notice all the words of emptiness that are here. When I stop you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to a word of emptiness. I'd like you to say it with me. Blessed are the... That's an empty word. Anybody put that on their life goals? All right? Like you write it down? I know with, with, uh, we do this, we, we've done this thing with young people before, vision boards. Anybody ever done a vision board in school or something? You know what I'm talking about, vision boards? Anybody put poverty on their vision board? No? Wasn't there? It's a word of emptiness. So remember, let it strike you. Like, let it frustrate you a little bit. Like, Jesus, what do you mean? Happy are the poor? Content and satisfied are the poor? Now, in the days of the scripture that we're reading, poverty, we, have, we are, and, I, and it's from our Christian heritage, but we value people, which we, well, at least we say we do. I don't know if we always do a really good job of it. But we say, as a culture, that we value people in poverty, don't we? We give them, we, we, we try to set up a culture with social programs and education to help lift people out of poverty. But in ancient times, in ancient times, poverty was denigrated. It was looked down upon. If you were poor, it was because there was something deficient in your life, not just capability-wise, but you were looked down morally. Like, well, if you were a good person, if you knew God, you would be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so for Jesus to come and say there's happiness in any kind of poverty would have been very countercultural to them. That would have smacked against their value system. Because to them, the richer you were, the better your spiritual status. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, I said I was going to read through it and we're going to look at the empty words, right? So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse number four. Blessed are they that... That's probably a worse feeling of emptiness than even poverty. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. See how far that gets you in climbing the business structure of today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do and hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. For they shall be filled. Let's work through these. Did you see them? I jotted these down in my notes. Poor, mourn, meek, hungry, and thirsty. Poor, mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty. What's happening here is it's a question do we really understand our true spiritual condition? I mean, because what Jesus is saying here is people who are in my kingdom, 
People who belong to me are people who are spiritually poor, they're mourners, they're meek, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who are a part of my kingdom understand why they have a great spiritual need. Do you know why so many people have a hard time with the gospel message? I mean, good people, religious people. Do you know why so many people have a hard time with biblical Christianity? Because this is what it says. On the one hand, the gospel says you are more sinful than you could possibly have imagined. But on the other hand, it says you are more loved than you could possibly have imagined. But it's that first statement that when it comes to what we offer to God, what do we have to give him? Nothing. The hymn writer, I forgot the hymn writer of the song Rock of Ages, but there's a wonderful line in that song. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. When I come to God, I have nothing to offer him except my sinfulness. But good people, religious people, hardworking people, we like to come to God and say, look what I have done for you. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is, I have nothing to offer you, God. And I am in desperate need of you. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, but look at what happens when somebody understands their spiritual poverty. Look what happens. When I realize I have nothing, I gain what? Everything. When I realize that I have nothing, I gain everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit because what do they get? What do they get? It's, they get the kingdom. They get the kingdom of heaven. But our problem is, that's not cool enough for us. But when do I get the car? And when do I get the bigger house? When do I get that? Jesus says, no, you, you might get that, but what you will certainly get is what? The kingdom. But for those of us with worldly kingdom eyes, we can't see past the car, the job, the relationship. But when do I get that stuff? When do I get that? In fact, there's a whole religious movement based on if you get Jesus, then you get the car and the house and the jet airplane and the TV ministry and all the good stuff. But that's not how God's kingdom works. It's not that those things are bad. It's that in the, in the scheme of eternity, they're not significant. They're simple pleasures when we're offered an eternity. We're offered God's kingdom. So I've got to ask you this. Remember, you sang the song, I Surrender All. You prayed that prayer, I Surrender All. Is the kingdom enough for you? Do you see the greatness of the kingdom? The happiness, the contentment, the true kingdom happiness comes from understanding my real spiritual condition. You might be here this morning and you might be a religious person. 
You might know Bible verses. You might do your best, and I commend you for your moral deeds and good things. That makes you a great neighbor. I, I would way rather live next to moral religious people than criminals and drug dealers. How about you, right? However, being a good neighbor, being a good person by the world standards, does not get you into the kingdom of God. Getting into the kingdom of God is recognizing that you can never be good enough, you repent of your sin, and you ask Jesus to save you. Have you ever done that? Usually I end the message with that invitation, but I want to invite you right now. If you've never received Jesus, this is the entry point to the kingdom. The entry point is to say, God, I have nothing. Jesus, you paid it all. I trust you as my Savior. You could do it right this moment. You could pray that to God. In your heart, you could say, yes, Jesus, I believe. You died. You rose again. I believe in you as my Savior. I have nothing to give you. Please save me. Do you know that even now as I'm talking, if you do that, you can enter the kingdom of God? by believing in your heart that Jesus is the Savior, that he died and that he rose again. Trust him. Don't trust yourself. Come to God poor in spirit and gain his kingdom. What about mourning? What about mourning? Those of us who know God's kingdom, we understand that while we may lose our earthly relationships, and isn't that painful? But there is a comfort because we have gained an eternal relationship with our Creator. All relationships in this earth are temporary, they're separated by death. But for the Christian, there is an eternal security that I am loved by someone who can never die. I am loved by someone who will never abandon me, who will never say those words, I don't love you anymore. And while we grieve in our hearts the deep loss of the end of human relationships, either through the tragedy of divorce or, or uh, disowning, or through the ultimate experience of death and loss, Jesus will never leave us. He is the only secure and perfect relationship that we have. And you may mourn, but you can still be happy. Not happy in a trivial way, but happy in that deep sense that I have Jesus Christ. He'll never leave me. In fact, why do we mourn when someone we love passes? We're not mourning for them, especially if they're Christians. They're in heaven. Who do we mourn for? We mourn for ourselves. I'm not saying that's selfish. That's natural. It's right. But we are experiencing loss. But with Jesus, there is no loss. There's never loss. I don't think I can even explain that adequately. I think it's something that you feel. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Understanding our emptiness. We're, we, we need to be poor in spirit. We'll experience mourning there's, but then meekness. There's a really cool paradox in this verse. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they shall what? Inherit. This is, this is interesting. The meek are going to inherit. What do you do to receive an inheritance? 
Not a trick question. Ready? Think about it. Think about it. What do you do to receive an inheritance? Somebody said be born. Right? I heard that somewhere over there. Ultimately, you do nothing. Who does, who does, who's, who's, who does all the work for the inheritance? Yeah. The, the person that worked for all of it. The parents, the grandparents, the rich uncle that you never knew you had until he dies and leaves you your inheritance. Isn't everybody just hoping there's one of those somewhere out there for them, right? You don't do anything for the inheritance. You just are. This is, this is the point of, in Christianity, we do not advance by what we do. We advance by the grace of God. The meek shall inherit the earth. You don't earn an inheritance. You receive an inheritance by grace. And so people will look at Christians sometimes, and listen, sometimes our lives don't make sense. They don't make sense. I remember years ago when my dad was making a decision about going into the ministry, and he was, he, he, in the early days when he, was, when, when he started pastoring the church here, and he had a business, and he was pastoring the church, and he just felt like that God wanted him to be full-time in the church, but the church didn't have enough money and, and all that. But he just knew that that's what God wanted him to do, and he closed down his business. And people in the family, not everybody understood that. They couldn't see why you would do that. I've known Christian people who have... They've, 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 um, they've served... Or they've, they've earned high degrees. Maybe they've gone into the medical field and they've given their life in a remote third world country. And people don't understand that. Like, why would you do that? Or somebody that would... would I, I, I know lots of people that have walked away from very, very lucrative careers because they felt God had a different purpose for their life. But let's make it even more simple. I've known people that their friends and family can't understand why they would give a tithe to the work of the Lord. It just doesn't make sense to them. Because the kingdom of this world says, achieve, 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 get everything that you can. Now, we don't, the, the world doesn't say step on people. and do, you know, we, we have a, a kind of polite way of doing it. But ultimately, the message is the same. You take, you get, you grow, you amass, you invest, and then you, re, you achieve the pinnacle. But Jesus sometimes calls us, well, he always calls us to lives of meekness. Where we say, well, no, I don't do that because I surrendered all to the Lord. I gave it all. My whole life to him. Because we know that we don't advance by achieving. We advance by receiving the grace of God. And if you're like, I don't know, this just still isn't clicking with me. Well, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to do. It's supposed to challenge our thinking. Perplex us a little bit. And if you're like, man, I just don't see it. Well, let God keep speaking to your heart. If you have an open heart, he will, he'll make his ways known to you. You'll understand. And then the last part of this emptiness is we hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. What drives you? What gets you up a little extra early in the morning? What makes you work 
a little bit harder, put a little extra effort in? Anybody ever take on a second job so they could buy something? Anybody ever done that before? Anybody here? No, seriously, nobody? Take a second job so you're like, all right, I really want to do that. That's great. That's awesome. Hard work. But are we ever driven with a sense of, I just need to get closer to God? So we go a little bit further. We'll do a little bit extra. We'll take that a little bit further because we are so hungry, we are so thirsty. Whatever it was, whatever you worked a little hard for, when you got it, did it satisfy you completely? I'm not saying it was bad. You probably, there was some satisfaction. But if it was a car, you probably don't own it anymore. What do we, what is it, especially young people, in our life-building years? Be careful. Whatever is driving you, ask yourself the question, is this going to ultimately satisfy you? Because if we're driven by the, the desire to know God, that will ultimately satisfy. So he says, we need to really understand our emptiness. We also look at verses 7 through 9. We need to recognize a need for transformation. Verse 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Let me tell you how you're not supposed to read this. Okay, you got your pen out in your hand, okay, you ready? You got your pen out, and it says, blessed are uh, the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Am I merciful? Mercy? Yeah, okay, check, did that. Blessed are the pure in heart. And do I have a pure heart? Yep, check, I, did, I got that one. All right, um, blessed are the peacemakers. Am I a peacemaker? Yep, check, I did that one. The point of, and you could even, you could go back and do that with the other ones. Yes, check, 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 check. I've, I've got that. This must mean. You see, what Jesus is giving us here is not a checklist to validate me, but he's giving me a challenge to humble me. It's not a checklist to validate me. It's a challenge to humble me. Because if you are able to go through the Sermon on the Mount and check off all the boxes, you don't need a savior because you're all set. The further we go through Jesus' teaching, we are supposed to see. It's like the Ten Commandments, right? It's like, yep, kept them all, did them all. Remember that rich, the rich kid who came to Jesus and was like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep all the commandments. And he's like, yeah, I think I got that one. I think I did that. You're like, well, what did Jesus say? Come back another time, we'll talk about it, or look it up. The point of all of Jesus' teaching is not to validate us, but to show us our desperate need of his transforming power. This is the gospel. It's that I cannot do it. I mean, look what he says. He says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful for... They shall obtain mercy. Interesting here. Are you merciful in every interaction that you have? Or are you more justice oriented? 
We live in a, in a generation that cries for justice. But do we really want justice? Now, I believe that there should be justice. Our God is a God of justice, so don't, don't misunderstand me. However, in our quest for justice, have we forgotten mercy? In fact, you'll find very often, you'll find this in history. The people, that you look at the history of communism. It was all about justice for the masses. But what did they do to the so-called oppressors? They annihilated them. There was no mercy for them, just justice for me, but not mercy for you. Are we truly merciful? You say, well, I think I'm a merciful person. Well, what about when you get cut off? Does the mercy come out or the justice come out? We are not by nature merciful people. We want justice. Now, there's a righteousness to justice. And we, I don't have time to completely unpack this, but justice was satisfied on the cross. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the need for justice when he took our sins on him. And he made it so that you and I, while we want justice, we can receive mercy from the Lord Jesus. We receive mercy. And as people who understand that we were in need of mercy, we should be able to then extend what? Mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall obtain mercy. Merciful. That is not something that comes naturally to us. It must be given to us by the Lord. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. I, can you check that box off? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Okay. Well, I love this illustration. I, I, I only learned it really within the last couple of years, and it, it just sticks with me. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. All right, well, how about we do this? We've got a pretty big screen here. You can all see it, right? Everybody can see the screen? So let's, let's not just look at what everybody has seen this week, but let's see everything that went through your mind. Let's put it on the screen and play it for the crowd. Would I have any volunteers for that? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For they shall what? See God. How could I have a pure heart? Who has to give me a pure heart? God does. God does. Jesus comes and he gives, us, he gives us a new nature. That I still have my old man inside of me, but God doesn't see that anymore. He sees the new man in Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not for us to say, okay, I'll make my heart pure, I'll make my heart pure. There's no one who's ever done it. But Jesus can take the most sinful heart and make it pure as snow. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. In this, we reflect the character of God who came to make peace with us. Well, let's close on this last thought, though. To, be, to have that deep happiness, that blessedness, we understand our emptiness. We recognize that we have to be changed. We have to be transformed. And then finally, we should be planning our eternal future. We should be making preparations not for tomorrow, not for retirement, but for eternity. And so Jesus saves the most shattering of expectations for this last part of this section. And he says this, in fact, verse number 10, 
Blessed are they which are, what's the word? Persecuted. How could you be happy if people are persecuting you? How could this be? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you. What? Falsely for my sake. Okay, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. I'm ready to give my life to you, Jesus. What comes next? Oh, did you hear about the persecution? Did you hear about the false accusations? Did you hear about the ridicule? Did you hear about the scorn? That's not much of a sales pitch, is it? <laughs> Trav, you're a professional salesman. Have you ever told somebody, this product will bring difficulty into your life? No. Won't, you won't sell much there. However, what Jesus is teaching is this. You'll lose some things to follow me. You'll have some people that don't like you. You'll have some people criticize you. You'll have people say things falsely against you. But you know what you should do if, if that happens? Verse number 12. What you should do is, what's the first word? Verse number 12. Rejoice. And be exceeding glad. For great is your what? Reward where? But when do I get the car? When do I get the house? When do I get all the stuff that I want? Jesus says, I didn't promise you any of those things. But I promised you something far better and far greater. A reward where in a few verses, he's going to say in a place where nothing ever rusts. And nothing ever decays. And everything is perfect forever. So would you be willing to trade a little temporary discomfort for an eternal glory? That's what Jesus says. And in this, he's going to say in this same book, because after all, what would you be profited if you gained the whole world but you lost your soul. You got the car. You got the relationship. You got the house. You got the job. You got the boat. You got the toys. But you lost it all. See, someone who's a Christian has undergone a kingdom transformation. Does it mean we don't ever slip and still desire all those worldly things? No, but we come back to the word and we remember, wait a minute, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I don't belong to this world's kingdom anymore. I belong to Jesus' kingdom. And he has something far greater ahead for me. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, there's nothing in this world that can, that can stop that. There's nothing in this world that can change your eternal future. You belong to the kingdom of God. And if you do know Jesus and you are part of his kingdom, make sure you're living with these kingdom values. Live out kingdom values. Don't live the values of the kingdom you've been delivered from. Live the values of God's kingdom. That's a convicting thought for each of us. No matter how long you've been a Christian, are you living 
Are you living out the kingdom happiness that God has offered you? But then maybe you're here, and like I said at the very beginning, maybe you're not a part of God's kingdom. Maybe you've never come to Jesus empty and broken and said, I give it all to you. I give you my life. I give you my sin. I give you my failures. I give you my mistakes. I am unworthy. But I believe that you died for me. I believe you rose for me, and I ask you to save me. If you've never made that decision, that's the most important thing you can do. It doesn't profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul. Don't walk out of here this morning if you're not sure that you've given your heart and soul to Jesus. So right now I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that if you've never done it. We're going to have a time of prayer. And so if you are a Christian, you can be praying right now. If you're not a Christian, you can give your life to Christ right now. So would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? I'd appreciate it if we could be still in this moment. If we could just give our full attention to the Lord and to what he's doing in our hearts. So with no one looking around, just you and the Lord right now, are you sure? Are you sure that you've received Jesus as your Savior? I mean, not... Not like I hope so, or I think, or maybe, or I know about Jesus. I mean, are you sure? If you'd say, Ethan, no, I'm not sure. Then why don't you make sure right now? It happens in your heart, but the Bible says that we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart. So would you make that confession to the Lord right now? Would you pray something like this? If you want to make sure, would you say, dear God, dear God, I know that I am a sinner. But I believe that you died for me. I believe that you are the only way of salvation. I believe you died. I believe you rose again. And I ask you to save me. I believe that you died and rose again. And I ask you to save me, Jesus. With no one looking around, is there anybody in here that would say, Ethan, I prayed that this morning. I won't call your name out. I won't embarrass you or make you do anything, but I do want to pray for you privately. If you say, Ethan, I made sure this morning. We just quickly, just so I could see it, slip your hand up, slip it down. Anyone at all would say, I did that this morning. I made sure this morning that my faith was in Jesus. Hand up, hand down. If you're watching on the live stream, would you just send a private message? Say, hey, today I made sure my faith was in Christ. Christians, let's just take another minute in prayer. The piano is going to softly play as we prepare to conclude. But are you living out kingdom values? Are you living out a life that where it looks like you believe that you'll live forever? Or have you let this world distract you? Surrender that. We'll sing that song again. I surrender all. Surrender your distractions to the Lord. Take a minute and pray. Let God do a work in your heart. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the challenge that you've given us this morning. I pray if someone in here has not put their faith in you, that today would be the day that they would realize their need for a Savior, that they would put their faith in you, Lord, that you would, for the rest of us, you would convict us, Lord, to walk in your word and to meditate on what we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. 
Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.